So, let's continue with our series of talks called Encounter, week three, the third of these series of talks. Encounter is based in the Gospel of Luke, and we're looking at nine first-time encounters that people had with Jesus Christ in the Gospel of Luke, and the pretty life-changing results that took place uh, as a consequence. And as I say each week, I believe it's a series for all of us, wherever we're at this morning. If you're someone that's looking into the Christian faith, thinking about it, someone invited you here this morning, this is a great series for you, because you'll see that every one of these encounters are first-time encounters. They're people, I guess, like you, who were thinking about Jesus, investigating Jesus, and they met him for the first time, and their lives changed as a result. And for those of us who are Christians, it's a series for us as well, because we said each week that following Jesus is not a case of you have a a first-time encounter that changes your life, and then it's kind of, you get on with the activities of being a Christian. No, the invitation of following Jesus is to encounter him time and time again, fresh encounters that change us and transform us and move us, and I believe that's what's going to happen this morning. If we open to what God's saying, we can expect to have either a first-time encounter with Jesus Christ, God himself, or indeed a fresh encounter with Jesus Christ, God himself. So be expectant. We're going to be in Luke 5 and verses 17 to 26, and we're going to meet somebody else who had a pretty life-changing encounter with Jesus. The words will be on the screen, and I'm also going to read them to you. So Luke 5 and verse 17. On one of those days, as he, Jesus, was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in, because of the crowd, they went up to the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all. And they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. So, what is going on in this passage? Well, just contextually, it's probably quite a large, wealthy house that we're talking about in this passage here, given the number of people who are gathered to hear Jesus teach. Um, In first century Palestine, the house would probably have had an external staircase outside leading up to a, a roof. And the roof would almost certainly have been flat because in that climate, in that context, people would often choose to sleep on the roof as a way of trying to cool down in the really uh, hot part of the year. And so what's happening is that a disabled man is carried by his friends up this external staircase onto this flat roof, and they then proceed to lift away the baked mud Middle Eastern tiles, I guess make some kind of stretcher-sized gap, and then lower him down into Jesus' midst. So it's a scene in which a lot of people get surprised. 
I think that would be an understatement. There's a lot of surprise taking place. So all of those who've gathered in the house to hear Jesus teach are obviously pretty surprised, as I guess they would have sort of heard some kerfuffle above, and, and then maybe some sort of dust starts to fall through, and then to their amazement, a hole appears in the roof, and a paralyzed man gets lowered down into their midst. So they're pretty surprised, to put it mildly. Secondly, the Jewish religious leaders of the day are also surprised. The religious leaders, the Pharisees who were there, they're pretty surprised because Jesus is claiming to be able and to be authorized to do what only God can do, forgive sins. So they're pretty shocked. And thirdly, the man himself, he gets quite a surprise because him and his mates have gone to exceptional lengths to get him to Jesus. And they've done that for one purpose and one purpose only, which is that he might be able to stand up and walk out of that place. And with that purpose in mind, Jesus says to him, your sins are forgiven. So he gets a surprise. And then finally, everyone's pretty surprised as Jesus does eventually heal the man and a paralyzed man stands up and walks out of the place. So, what's this passage telling us about an encounter with Jesus? I think it's telling us one big thing over, over three steps. It's telling us three things. It's telling us about our immediate ache. It's teaching us about our deeper ache. And it's teaching us about the solution that heals. Our immediate ache, our deeper ache, and the solution and heals. And what I believe God is saying to us this morning through this passage is that whether your ache is immediate or it's more hidden, an encounter with Jesus is for anyone that aches. Number one, our immediate ache. It's fair to say the paralyzed man has a very immediate ache. He has a clear and deeply felt need. He is paralyzed. So we don't know what's happened to him, whether it's through birth or through accident or through illness, but he is unable to walk. And we think he's probably heard or he, maybe he's observed that Jesus is able to do remarkable miracles. In fact, in Luke himself, in verse 15, just a few verses before our passage, Luke tells us, quotes, that great crowds gathered to hear him and be healed of their infirmities. So he's heard, or maybe he's observed, of this um, miraculous power that Jesus has. Now, just before we go any further, let me just say this. If, if the concept of the, the supernatural miracles makes you dubious about Christianity, then that's not unreasonable, because... Miracles, by definition, are hard to believe in. But just consider this. If, if there is a God, and he's responsible for the beginning and the sustaining of the universe, and if that God has chosen to reveal himself in Jesus Christ, then is it not possible, philosophically, logically, that that same God could do supernatural things, could do miracles? So I'd say don't dismiss your doubt, but equally don't let your doubt dismiss Jesus. Anyway, back to, the, back to the man being lowered down through the roof. <laughs> the reason his friends have gone to such lengths to get into Jesus is simply because they are hoping for a miracle. That is the sole purpose for them to be there. Might Jesus allow their friend to be able to walk? So imagine the surprise when Jesus seems to ignore this man's very clear disability, very clear immediate need, and simply says to him, your sins have been forgiven. Last year... Um, I got married, as many of you know, and, uh, and Caroline and I, we had the traditional, by now traditional, John Lewis wedding list. 
which is a truly glorious thing because you can list all of the things that would quite help you to make yourself a home, especially if, in my case, you existed in some fairly minimalist form beforehand. So John Lewis winning lists are very, very helpful to us, and uh, many people were very kind enough to buy us um, these wonderful things that helped us to make a, make a home together. Um, however, some friends of my parents decided to, who were coming to wedding, decided to completely ignore the wedding list, um, and instead send us, I think quite a lot of cost to themselves, some fairly expensive but frankly hideous napkins. And our, our reaction was like, okay, um, thanks, didn't really ask for those, didn't really want those, sort of put the 64-inch plasma screen on there, hoping you might get that, but you've ignored that. So kind of like bafflement, I suppose, was our sort of response. And I guess maybe the man himself, this paralyzed man, he may have experienced some kind of bafflement in the sense that if he was a, I don't know, if he was a Londoner in 2017, he might have said something like uh, to Jesus, um, sins are forgiven, uh, okay, um, I'm open to an interesting spiritual experience, but I was kind of hoping for something pretty different. I've got a fairly obvious, immediate need here, Jesus. Well, more likely, perhaps, maybe he was not just baffled, maybe he was pretty hurt and pretty offended. You see, in that culture, somebody in his situation almost certainly couldn't work. He would have had to beg, presumably, would have totally relied upon charity. He would have been unable, probably, to access the temple or any of the religious and social and cultural opportunities of the day. And what's more, at the time, there was a commonly held view that the reason someone like him was in the condition that he was in was because of his own sin, or because of his parents' sin, perhaps. So he would have been familiar with people either saying or just exuding the sense of, it's your fault that you're like this. You're unclean, or your parents were. You're unworthy, you are a sinner. That's why, that's why you're paralyzed. He would have lived with that, almost certainly, for a number of years. Can you imagine that? So he would almost certainly have ached, ached with the, the physical and the emotional and the spiritual hurt that he had lived with, presumably, for years. And Jesus seems to completely bypass all of that physical condition and instead tells him, your sins have been forgiven. So on the one hand, Jesus ignores his very pressing and immediate need. And on the other hand, at the same time, by saying I've forgiven your sins, he brings up the thing that has been perhaps most painful for him over the years. The idea that he's like that because of his own sin. So what, what is Jesus doing? What is he doing in those moments? What's he not doing? Well, first of all, what's he not doing? He, he's not saying that the man's condition doesn't matter. He's not saying that the physical is not important. Of course, for, for this man, all he really wanted to do was to be able to walk. That's why he's there. And of course, anyone who would be in that situation would feel the same. Uh, Caroline works at a military hospital and there are a number of injured servicemen there who along with their uh, medical staff, they're doing all that they can every day to be able, maybe one day, to walk again. And of course, if you're able to do that, that is just the most wonderful, satisfying, happy experience. And notice too, that Jesus does heal him. Jesus does get to that, he does heal him, he does leave him healed. 
And, and the Bible is clear. The Bible cares really. Deep. The Bible is clear that God cares really deeply about the physical. This is not Jesus just ignoring the physical. The Bible doesn't do that. There's no mystical emphasis of kind of soul being far more important than body. In fact, the New Testament consistently counters that kind of teaching. The Bible tells us that God made a physical world. It tells us that God became physical in Jesus Christ. Christianity's understanding of eternity is completely different to any other religion's understanding of eternity. Christianity says that eternity is a renewed, perfect, material world. The physical, made perfect. So what's not going on here is Jesus somehow dismissing the physical, dismissing the immediate ache that this man is experiencing. So what is he saying? If that's what he's not saying, what is he saying? I think the sense of what he's saying in those few words, it's something like, I do see you. I do see you. I see your suffering. I will get to that. I promise you. It's like he's saying, but, but let me just first show you what your immediate ache points to. It's like he's saying, let me peel away the layers, if you'll let me, and show you that along with your immediate ache, you have a deeper ache. It's like he's saying to the man, your immediate ache is a profound thing in and of itself, and it's also a signpost, a signifier to a deeper ache. And that's the second point this morning, our deeper ache. There's, um, there's an American writer called Cynthia Heimel, uh, and she's written for the New York Times and Vogue and Independent. And uh, she explains that over the years, as her career as a writer, she's been in the show business, theatre, cinema, film world an awful lot. That's been her world. And, and as such, she says that she's known a lot of struggling actors and actresses over the years who kind of have to work in bars and restaurants and cinemas to, to sort of pay the bills and make a living. And she says that she's noticed over the years that lots of them would often say a very similar thing. They would often all say something along the lines of, if only I could make it in the business, I'd be happy. I guess for many of us, we would often say, or at least think, maybe when we're particularly struggling, we probably would think things like, if only I had this, or didn't have this, if only I was like that, then I would know happiness or peace or fulfillment. Anyway, Cynthia Heimel noticed something else. She also noticed that when some of these actors, actors and actresses did make it, like they got the, the fame and the affirmation they'd been longing for, she says very bluntly that they became insufferable. And she says they became insufferable because they became unhappier than they were before. She says this, let me read what she says to you. She's not a, not a Christian herself. She says, I pity celebrities. No, I do. Celebrities were once perfectly pleasant human beings, but now their wrath is awful. More than any of us, they wanted fame. They worked, they pushed. The morning after each of them became famous, they wanted to take an overdose. Because that giant thing they were striving for, that fame thing that was going to make everything okay, that was going to make their lives bearable, that was going to provide them with personal fulfillment and happiness had happened. And nothing changed. They were still them. And the disillusionment turned them howling and insufferable. She's saying, they got the thing that they thought would make everything okay. And it didn't. And then she concludes by saying, as a, 
as a non-believer, she concludes by saying, I think when God wants to play a really rotten practical joke on you, he grants your deepest wish. And what Jesus, I think, is effectively saying to the disabled man is, I'm not going to play a rotten joke on you. I'm not going to just heal your body and let you think you've got your deepest wish or I've met your deepest ache. It's like he's saying, when I heal you, which I will, you'll feel like you're never going to be unhappy again. But wait. It's like he's saying, wait. If, if, if I just, that's all I do, but wait. You wait six months, a year, two years. The euphoria of even that will eventually fade. It's like he's saying the true roots of your of human discontent, the true roots of your ache actually go deeper even than you realize. So, can we take a moment to be honest with ourselves? What is your ache? If I can put it like that. Maybe it's like the, the paralyzed man. Maybe, maybe it is not necessarily as um, severe as him, but maybe it is urgent and obvious. There's an immediate ache that you have that is urgent and obvious. It's illness, perhaps, for you or for a loved one. Or it's loneliness. Or it's unemployment. Or it's financial crisis. Or relational breakdown. There's an immediate ache in that sense. Or you might say, I don't really have an immediate ache. Certainly not like the, the man in the, in the passage. I don't have that. So, I guess I don't need Jesus. Well, whether it's obvious, immediate, or it's more hidden away, I want to gently suggest that you do have something. You do have something that you believe that if you have that, or become like that, or get free of that, then all will be well. Then peace or fulfillment or satisfaction will be yours. And my question is, what is that for you? Let me just try and demonstrate what I'm hoping that you'll do and be honest myself. So when I reflect on this, one of the joys and the challenges of studying and preaching the Bible is that God tends to do some, do some work in you before you uh, get to teach it. And um, I kind of wrestle whether to share this, but, but here goes. If I reflect on my immediate ache, I suppose, it's probably the most immediate thing that I ache for, it's probably for the church to grow, I would say. That's probably what often drives me, it's what occupies uh, vast amount of my thoughts. Now if I allow Jesus to do what he's able to do uniquely and kind of peel away what's behind that, you start to see a mixture of motives often that can be at play, at least I have seen that. And for me, ever since I was a boy, I think I've, I've always been particularly like driven to succeed, to win, to get it right, to do it well, all that kind of stuff. And on the sports field, which is where I've inhabited most of my days between seven and 30, that kind of stuff is, is sort of necessary, at least, if not no bad thing. But then if you kind of peel away that, if I peel away that, then I realize that often for me, what is behind that desire to win or to be successful or to get it right is just a desire to be well thought of, if I'm honest. A desire to be approved of. Or a desire to matter. And so, for me at least, what's happening then is that my immediate ache, 
and I'm honest about it, is it's like it's signifying, it's signposting to me a deeper ache. Now, I happen to believe, I'm a church pastor, you expect me to say this, I happen to believe that the immediate ache is a good thing. I think many of us are convinced that a local church that is growing is a good thing. A church that is seeing people explore faith, come to faith, and grow in faith is a good thing. A church that has increasing resources so that it can engage with and help renew its city and its community is a good thing. And gosh, the paralyzed man's immediate ache was a good thing. He could have just said, God, you gave me a body, you gave me legs, I want to use them. <laughs> His ache was a good thing. But often, at least my experience this week, is that an encounter with Jesus shows us that if we'll let him, he will gently peel away the layers and he will show us that we actually have a far deeper ache than the immediate ache that we present. And the deeper ache can be things like to be approved of, to be accepted to be secure, to know meaning, purpose. So what's the solution that heals? What's the solution that heals? Final point, as I said before, we mustn't ignore the fact that Jesus does heal this man miraculously. As we said last week, we have a God who cares deeply about our needs, about our aches. A God who I believe has not dialed down his power over the last 2,000 years to give us a diluted version of it. A God who is able and willing, not one or the other, both, able and willing to heal and to restore. Why? As a demonstration of his power and of his love. It's something we are praying about, those of us who are in the pre-service prayer mission are praying about. A God who has invited us to be empowered by him and to lay hands on those who are sick and ill and see him heal them for their good and for his glory and for the demonstration of his love and power. Do we see as much of it as we'd like to? No. Do you believe that it's true? Yes. And so if you're sick or you're ill, we'd love to pray with you at the end. We'd love to see God come and bring healing into those situations because you believe he can do that. And we'd love to pray with you. But, or should I say and, because I don't want you to hear this as a contradiction, our physical needs are not our deepest needs. Now I can say that maybe more easily as a relatively healthy person. So please hear me if it's not, that's not your story or the story of those you loved one or the story of those that you love. But I think what Jesus is saying is that even our most immediate of physical needs are not our deepest needs. It's what Jesus is saying to the paralyzed man. He's saying to him, your ache for physical wholeness and fulfillment is pointing deep down to an ache for spiritual wholeness and fulfillment. Forgiveness of sin is our deepest ache. And what sin? Something that everyone, Christians over the years, have sought to explain. I think in this context, sin could be described like this. Sin is, is saying to ourselves, true fulfillment and wholeness is found over here and not in God. It's saying, I'm gonna take this thing, which is almost certainly a good thing, like relationships or success or material security, and that is what I'm gonna put my trust in to meet my deepest ache. So what's repentance? 
which can be a word that we get a bit nervous of because it sounds heavy and occasionally has been used in a heavy way. But what is repentance in this context? Whether it's, whether, whether it's for the first time, as you encounter Jesus for the first time, or whether it's for a fresh time. Because Christians don't stop repenting. Christians have embraced the eternal, permanent forgiveness and approval of God. But often as an outworking of that forgiveness being one, we continually tap into it, do we not? That's what repentance is. So what is repentance in this instance, whether it's for the first time or for a fresh time? Well, it's simply this. It's saying to God, I turn away from trusting those things to meet my deepest ache, and instead I trust you. It's turning away from trusting those things, which are probably good things, to meet my very deepest ache, and instead I trust you. Now, I want you to notice something else in this text which really impacted me this week in my own encounter with Jesus. It just kind of blew me away. Notice this. Jesus forgives the man without him asking. Did you notice that? There's no repentance here. And Jesus forgives him. And why is that? That doesn't happen in the Bible. Nowhere in the Bible does God forgive without there being an asking for it, people repenting. So what's going on? Why is Jesus forgiving this man when there's been no repentance? Is Jesus contradicting the Bible? Is Luke contradicting the Bible by telling us about it? I think the clue is in verse 22. In verse 22 it says, when Jesus perceived their thoughts. When Jesus perceived their thoughts. So part of Jesus' power, which kind of makes sense if he is God, is he's able to perceive and discern and tell what people are thinking, including us. So he knew, the, the, the phrase is saying explicitly, he knew what the Pharisees were thinking. He straight away discerns that they were outraged, they're horrified that he could claim authority and ability to forgive sin. Okay, so that's clearly in place in the passage. Now, there's no reason to think that Jesus is contradicting scripture. He never does that anywhere else, so I don't think he is here. So if he's not contradicting scripture, what is going on? Well, I think, therefore, it is reasonable to to suggest that when it says Jesus perceived their thoughts, what Luke is saying is he didn't just perceive the thoughts of the Pharisees, he also perceived the thoughts of the paralyzed man. That makes sense? So he must have, he must have, I think, perceived something in this man's heart, like a, a partial, fragmentary, inarticulate, unexpressed longing for grace. He spotted something. And he responded to it straight away. That's how willing Jesus is to forgive and give grace. Jesus' attitude is not, are you sorry? And how sorry are you? You better get down and, or stay down and beg and then we'll see how sorry you are. It's not Jesus' attitude at all. Jesus responds to an ache. He responds to something, somewhere, deep inside this man that he can even barely express, something deep inside this man that says to him, even beyond my desperate desire to be able to walk again, I have a desire even deeper than that to be whole, to be made whole, to be truly and fully whole. There's something inside this man that knows even beyond the miraculous, immediate physical healing, even that won't bring him the approval and the security and meaning in the arms of God that he deep down longs for. And he can't express it, but it's there and Jesus is so amazing that he perceives it and he responds to it. That is how gracious Jesus is. I just look at him in that moment. You can trust him. (laughs) 
can't you trust a God like this? Who is that wise? He's that discerning. He's that kind and tender that he perceives this inarticulate, fragmentary longing and he responds to that and says, I forgive you, I make you whole. You can trust a God like that. Now just because Jesus is willing to forgive, you might say, it doesn't mean that he's able to. Or that it's his right to. Which is what the Pharisees get straight on to. That's their objection. They say, you're a heretic. You can't forgive people, only God can. And they're right. Often I think we give the Pharisees a hard time, but they're often right. So you have three men. We'll call them very imaginatively Tom, Dick, and Harry. And let's say that Tom punches Dick on the nose. Blood everywhere. And Harry walks over to Tom and says, I forgive you, Tom. So Tom punches Dick and Harry forgives Tom. So what's Dick going to say? Um, listen, listen. <laughs> listen, Harry. Tom punched me on the nose. You can't just forgive him like that. He, he wronged me. Now Jesus says to someone that he hasn't met before, who hasn't sinned against him in a human context, a human sense, he says to that man, your sins are forgiven. So he's making a claim that ultimately the man's sin is against him. And the Pharisees know this, and they know what I think, I guess most of us would instinctively know, which is that the only person who could ever say that all sin is against him is the creator and the sustainer of the universe. And Jesus says, yeah, that's me. So what, what is sin? Sin is saying to ourselves, true fulfillment and wholeness is found over here and not in God. And Jesus is saying, I'm God. I'm demonstrating that through my miracles and through my perfect life and through coming back to life again from death. Jesus is saying, turn to me, either for the first time or for a fresh time, because he's so willing to forgive. Did you not see in that passage how willing he is to forgive, how kind he is, how discerning he is? Jesus is someone you can trust. Jesus is someone you can come to eagerly, even with inarticulate, barely expressed longings for forgiveness, and he responds to those. He's not waiting for some perfectly scripted, liturgical piece of repentance. He responds to an ache. So I want to help us to do that, and um, ask the band to help us to do that as well. And all I'm going to do really is just lead us in a, in a couple of prayers, as I've been doing the last couple of weeks, and then to give you some space to use those words to pray, if you wish to, in your in your head, in your heart. And I'm gonna pray first of all for anybody who is seeking healing for that immediate ache. Because remember, Jesus doesn't bypass that. And we wanna bypass that. And that immediate ache might be physical illness or sickness like it was for the man, or it might be the things that I mentioned, like the relational breakdown or the financial crisis or the, the loneliness, those things that are just right here and if there was a thought bubble in your head coming out now, we'd see it because it's there and it's right at the front of your thinking and conscious. So I want to pray for God's healing to come for those immediate aches. And then secondly, I want to lead us in, in a, a prayer of repentance. 
for those of us that are, are Christians, I'll lead us in that. And that's just an opportunity to say, if this has resonated with you, if you'd say, yep, deep down, I know that I'm putting my hope and trust for my deepest desires, I'm putting those things in things that aren't God's. And so I want to ask forgiveness for that. Then I'll just lead you in a, in a prayer for that. And if you're not yet a Christian, I'll lead you in a prayer for that so that you can do it for the first time. Because a first time encounter is for anyone that aches and you can receive that forgiveness in a moment now and that approval and acceptance and permanent security in the arms of God. So can I pray those things and I'll leave a pause at the end and you can um, pray as you, as you wish, if you wish, in your head and then we'll, we'll stand and sing.